Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast that tells you everything you need to know about an individual bird species with a laid-back atmosphere. And usually, I record outside, too, in some pretty cool places. And today, I'm recording in Otter Creek Wilderness, outside Elkins, West Virginia. It's a pretty cool place. Uh, It's named after the creek that runs through it and runs through some forest that pretty much hasn't been touched since it's been logged about a hundred years ago. And lots of rhododendrons, lots of pine, spruce, and hemlock, which the bird I'm talking about today, the ruby-crowned and golden-crowned kinglets, both love. And I heard some golden crowns doing their typical Z call when I was uh, walking out to this spot here. Hopefully they'll show up. I think I scared them away pulling out my recording equipment, but hopefully they'll show up and grace us with a little bit of sounds. But I want to start today's episode with a place much different from where I'm recording from right now in the mountains of West Virginia. This is Guadalupe Island, which you may know it lies off the coast of Baja, California, and this island was originally formed uh, within the past few tens of thousands of years from two large shield volcano eruptions. The magma from these volcanoes cooled into basalt rock that raised the island up from the seafloor to over 4,000 feet above sea level at its highest points. The southern volcano was the older of the two and like first started forming the island, but the younger northern volcano likely last erupted within the past 10,000 years and is still considered active by some. And as this island was taking shape among fire and salt like 10, 20,000 years ago, the climate of Earth was also changing a lot. It was going from periods of glaciations to a period of warmer climate that we know now, and glaciers were retreating across North America. And so there were a lot of species that kind of had been stuck within these places of refuge within the glaciers, or they just lived south of the glaciers and as the glaciers receded they followed and kind of conquered new lands and spread out. One of the species that did this was the ruby crowned kinglet who we're talking about today who spread out to this new island of Guadalupe and made it its new home. And there were a lot of species that did this and Guadalupe Island is kind of famous like a lot of islands um, for having species that are related to mainland species but then colonized the island 
and develop you know unique characterizations become other subspecies or entirely new species of their own an example of some birds like this is the guadalupe caraca and the guadalupe flicker but there's also the guadalupe ruby crown kinglet and it developed its own very distinctive subspecies uh, these birds normally have a red kind of crown feathers on the top of their heads but on guadalupe island they were pink and also they had much bolder facial markings. But just like these initial animal species had spread out and found Guadalupe Island and liked it, also European settlers, when they first started coming around the Pacific, uh, mainly sailors uh, in the early 1800s, found this island would be a nice place to put some goats and to have a nice goat population. So, you know, you're sailing and you need some meat supplies to bring on your ship. Well, there's an island full of goats right there. So they introduced the goats to this island. But goats, grazers on a island that has never had a large grazing herbivore before are detrimental. They ate down a lot of the foliage, leaving no habitat left for the native species of the island. And as if that wasn't bad enough, in the 1870s, cats were introduced to the island. And cats are just little murdering machines and have driven many island animals and also like uh, a lot of animals in Australia to extinction. So that was kind of the last nail in the coffin for a lot of these species, unfortunately. And word of this spread, people knew it was going on like in the late 1800s. So people knew that these were rare birds that were dying out. So ornithologists would flock to the island to shoot and collect specimens. Um, also, people saw monetary gains in these species and they would capture the birds, especially the Guadalupe Caraca. And then they would sell them in cities like San Diego that would have markets of these Guadalupe Caracas and there's terrible stories where people were pricing them too high so then they couldn't sell them so then the birds would just die and it's just awful. However, some people did recognize that this was a serious problem and we need to stop it. So in 1928, the island of Guadalupe was declared a nature sanctuary. They began removing the goats. They also constructed paddocks to keep goats out of the areas. But unfortunately, it was too late for a lot of these species. And one of these, unfortunately, was the ruby-crowned kinglet. The last documented one to be seen in the wild was in 1954 by Raymond Howe and Tom Cade. They found a flock of at least five and possibly more in the cypress forests of the island. However, repeat expeditions, one as recent as 2000, failed to find any ruby crown kinglets despite looking extensively. So the Guadalupe ruby crown kinglet is almost certainly extinct. Now there is a little bit of a bright side to this story. Uh, ruby crown kinglets haven't totally disappeared from this island. Uh, winter migrants still stop by, but they don't breed on the island. They're not that specific subspecies with the pink crown. But maybe some of them will like it, hang out, and uh, I don't know, become a subspecies of their own. So I wanted to start this episode with a story like that about this unique subspecies that we then lost because these birds really are a hidden gem and they're not like super common at backyard feeders so I feel like people don't really know them but they are really common and all it takes is a trip out into the woods of most of North America especially in the winter time and you'll be able to see these birds that sport some like subtle but amazing colors. Now, first off from their name, um, kinglet. So kinglet, I automatically think of piglet. And so I'm like, oh, little pig, piglet, 
Little King, Kinglet. And that's basically where the name comes from. Uh, let is like a diminutive suffix is what it's called. And you give it to a word and you're trying to say it's just a smaller version of itself. You know, like a booklet or a droplet. The genus name of both the ruby crown kinglet and the golden crown kinglet is Regulus. And this is Latin for prince or little king. Uh, it's similar if you've ever heard the term rex in Latin. Regulus is just kind of a little version. It's the piglet version in Latin for a king. And the golden crown kinglet, its species name is Satrapa. So its scientific name is Regulus Satrapa. That Satrapa comes from the word satraps. Um, I'm a total history nerd and I love this. Uh, so satraps, they were governors of provinces in the Persian Empire, Parthian and Sassanid Empire during like the Greek and Roman times. So this is a name the Greeks um, gave to them. Uh, and basically satraps are like little kings within their empire. They're kind of similar to like lords in England, you know, that would be serving under the king. So pretty much everything about the golden crown's name refers to it as a pretty splendid kingly bird, but it's just little. <laughs> the ruby crown is also very little like the golden crown, but its species name is Calendola. And this is from a Latin verb, kaleo, which means I am glowing or I am warm, which fits perfectly when you see the bright red of this bird's crown. And just a general description of these guys, both of them are very small birds. They're some of the smallest songbirds in North America. They average only about 3.5 to 4.5 inches in length. The ruby crowns are a little larger on average, but it's not by much. Really, the only bird you may confuse these guys with is the golden crowned warbler. But the golden crowned warbler has like a little orange patch on its head, but it's really more rust colored. It's not the magnificent crest that both these guys have, and uh, I'll talk about that more. So these birds have tiny bodies, tiny short tails, and then these short skinny bills. The bills are similar to what you might see on other insect catching birds, like a blue-gray gnat catcher. And usually when you see these guys, they're flittering through the branches of trees, gleaning insects, and it makes them really hard to get a good look at. Luckily, they're very vocal birds. They're almost constantly talking while they're flying around. If you do get a look at them, you'll see that the golden crown has a wash of gray olive on its body with some yellow on the wings. Its belly's mostly white, and that helps separate it from the ruby crown kinglet because the ruby crown kinglet is like uniform all around. But the golden crown also has these bold facial markings. It has like a black mustache, a black stripe through its eye, a white stripe above its eye. So white eyebrows, black mustache, very, very kingly. Um, its most conspicuous feature, though, is its namesake, that golden crown. It's basically like a mohawk stripe along its head, and on both sides of it, it has these black stripes, which really help to highlight it out. Um, and if it's a male that's agitated or, you know, trying to show off and mate, you'll see that it'll raise those crest feathers, and it'll display this amazing tangerine orange inside of it. The female can also raise her crown too, but it's just like a yellow. She doesn't have the orange that the male does. And I can't help but nerd out just a second on what makes the colors in the golden crown's crown. So 
I've talked on the show before about pigments in uh, birds' feathers. So the female crowns, they only contain the pigment hydroxycarotenoid. And so it's just a purely like sunshine yellow pigment. Um, but the male crown contains eight different carotenoid pigments. And one of the pigments it contains is Canthax anthin, uh, which is responsible for the orange and red colors in its crown. And this is also the pigment that gives cardinals roseate spoonbill um, into their like reds and their pinks. So check out my episode on cardinal roseate spoonbill to kind of learn more about pigments. But anyway, a final note on the golden crown's appearance is it apparently has yellow on the underside of its feet. I don't think you'd ever see that in the field. That has to be seen from like a, you know, (laughs) dead bird. But uh, there you go. Um, The ruby crown kinglet, it's much more drabber than the yellow crown. Uh, Its whole body is just this olive gray wash. There's a little bit of yellow mixed in, um, especially on its wing and its tail feathers. But its most distinctive field marks isn't even its crown. It's actually this broken white eye ring that it has. And then it has these white wing bars too. The ruby crown is only on the males, and it's very difficult to see. It's usually tucked just beneath gray feathers. Usually all you see of it is a little red dot on the back of the ruby crown's head. However, just like the golden crown, if it's getting agitated or it's feeling a little frisky, it'll flare that crown up, and you'll be rewarded by seeing it unfurl its ruby red mohawk. And it's really an experience when you're able to see this kind of almost shy seeming bird. It's just hiding its crown away. And then when it has a moment of emotion, it unfurls it. And like, it's like, whoa, Um, these birds, when I first saw them, they reminded me of that lizard in Jurassic Park that like unfurls its like things on the side of its head and spits acid at Newman. Um, That uh, I think I'm combining Seinfeld and Jurassic Park there. But uh, anyway, that's what these birds kind of remind me of. It almost made me like jump when it like unfurled its feathers, even though it's this like tiny, tiny little thing. It's like a ping pong ball. The habitat of these guys, I am sitting in right now, so I'll just describe my surroundings. They tend to prefer mostly conifer forests. So right now I'm looking at a nice spruce tree, which they love. And there's some hemlock trees also, which they also enjoy. Um, some young firs. Uh, they tend to like older firs, but... These guys will get there one day. This is the habitat they both prefer, especially when they're breeding. In the wintertime, it'll tend to go to more deciduous areas. But when it's breeding, it especially likes red spruce trees. And it'll begin nesting in a spruce only once it reaches the height of about 30 to 50 feet. Uh, Now, I kind of did some rough calculations on red spruce growth rate, and it seems like it'll take about 40, 50 years for red spruce to reach that height. So uh, it's definitely important to preserve some of these conifer forests so that they are able to mature for birds like this to nest in. And just to show you how important um, spruce and fir trees are for these birds, there was a study in Saskatchewan that showed that just one or two spruce trees within a stand of otherwise deciduous trees was enough for a ruby-crowned kinglet to be able to establish territory. In the summertime, they're mostly breeding up north, uh, up near Alaska, across Canada, Newfoundland, down into the USA following the mountain ranges where those conifers are going to be growing and everything. There are records of them breeding as far south as western North Carolina and then also breeding in the mountains of New Mexico. 
In wintertime, they'll range much farther south, though, going all the way to, like, northern Florida. They'll go down into Mexico, sometimes make it all the way to Guatemala. Um, sometimes they'll take a winter trip to the islands. They'll turn up in the Bahamas. The ruby crown, however, tends to not be as far north as the golden crown is. It doesn't do as well in the cold, and we'll talk about that more. They have experienced population and range change. The ruby crown population seems to be doing pretty fine. It's like stable around 90 million in the past 50 years. But the golden crown has spread its range to include spruce, pine plantations, and other new conifer forests popping up in the Midwest as the Great Plains are kind of replaced with suburbs. Uh, however, the golden crown is overall decreasing. Um, the eastern U.S. populations have been growing, but the western populations have experienced some significant decline, and it's estimated that 75% of the total population of golden crown kinglets has decreased since 1966. They're currently estimated to be around 100 million. So as I mentioned, their summer and winter environments will change. So these birds do migrate. Even though they occupy a huge range, individual birds do shorter migrations. And usually they tend to migrate due south when they do migrate. Populations that breed in mountainous areas, they might just go down to a lower elevation in the mountain and not really worry about flying south too much. For the ones that do migrate, the golden crowns will leave their winter range around April and March. They migrate earlier than the ruby crown kinglet, who will probably leave a couple weeks after the golden crowns leave. The golden crown kinglets also stay later in the fall than the ruby crown kinglets do. They stick around until late August and September, and sometimes golden crowns will stick around until October too. In general, the kinglets tend to stick around environments longer than other insectivorous birds, such as warblers, uh, because they exploit bugs in different ways than the warblers do. So even if the warblers are like, it's too cold here, I'm migrating down, the golden crowns, ruby crowns will be like, eh, I can get a little bit more food. I'll, I'll, I'll put off the trip a little bit. Ruby crown males will migrate before the females in the spring, and then they'll also stay longer during the summer, and the females will leave before the males do in the fall. There's a huge overlap in the breeding, migration, and wintering ranges for these birds. So unless you are in the extreme south or the extreme north of these birds' range, the kinglets you see, you're probably going to have a mix of year-round residents there and also migratory residents. There's also many records of these birds kind of getting blown off course when they're migrating. There's a lot of accounts of golden crowns and ruby crowns landing on ships far out in the Atlantic. And golden crowns especially like to land on ships in the Great Lakes because they'll fly straight across the Great Lakes and see a ship and be like, oh, that's a good place to take a rest before I hit the you know other side of the shore. Ruby crowns are especially kind of prone to wandering off, though. And in 1852, there was a report of one in Strathclyde, Scotland. Uh, there's a lot of debate about that account, whether it's really real or not. But for sure... The ruby crown turned up in Greenland in 1987, and then also there was one found on the Vestman Islands of Iceland. The golden crown and ruby crown both eat a wide variety of soft-bodied bugs such as spiders, crickets, and beetles. In winter, they may supplement their diet with some seeds, too. The golden crown is a gleaning specialist. He'll pick bugs or their eggs off the undersides of leaves and pine needles. They're very adapted to this, and they'll often be like clinging upside down on a bunch of pine needles, gleaning eggs off of them. During breeding season, the way the golden crowns feed is the male will follow the female around. 
Golden crowns are usually found feeding in the mid canopy of the forest, and occasionally they'll wander up to the upper canopy or on the ground. Ruby crowns are much more of a generalist feeding species. Maybe that's why their numbers aren't declining. Uh, they'll glean, but they also hover a lot to eat insects. They're more generalist in the trees they decide to feed on. They tend to feed higher up in the canopy than the golden crown and be more likely to feed in uh, other areas such as ground or mid canopy or brush. An example of just how generalist these guys are in their feeding behavior, I saw this account from Duke University that a, a person gave. I think they were like a graduate student. But um, there was an ice storm, and ice basically covered everything. Um, and the birds, you know, aren't really going to be able to get at the bark and the insects that are on them if it's all covered in ice. So this ruby crown was observed hovering near the side of this stone ancient building on Duke that had all these cracks on it and it was picking at the cracks and when the student approached and looked in the cracks they were full of you know spider webs and dead insects so you know he was just picking all those out and ruby crowns are also like the uh, red-bellied woodpecker I did my last episode on they've been observed drinking from sap sucker wells in wintertime you often see the golden crown ruby crown feeding alongside mixed flocks with chickadees titmice brown creepers and nuthatches and I'm hoping one of those mixed flocks comes close to me while I'm recording today. I can hear them off in the distance. Sometimes they'll approach, but I think I'm scaring them off. They're not used to people podcasting in their woods. I saw one study that said caterpillars of the geometrid moth. Um, you might know them as inchworms, those little green guys that are always hanging by string and everything. Um, they seem to make up an important winter food source for the golden crown kinglets. They hide on trees and they actually will f be frozen. They'll freeze onto the trees, um, but they'll still be alive. And basically they wait for the spring to thaw them out. Uh, the golden crown will find them though all frozen and just eat a nice little caterpillar popsicle. If seen on the ground, um, both these birds will hop exclusively to move. So the vocalizations with these birds, while they're very small, they're usually pretty easy to hear. They're constantly giving these CCC calls. Here's the golden crowned. And here's the ruby crowned. And while these are kind of like their contact calls, they definitely have some more complex songs. The Ruby Crown especially has a much more robust vocal array than the Golden Crown. Um, the Golden Crown just mostly gives a song ending in a warble, which you can hear. You're most likely to hear this song during the breeding season. The male will use it to establish territory. Um, also, the song is used by male and females to coordinate when they're going to switch incubation duties or feeding nestling duties. The Ruby Crown song is a much more complex series of notes and is given by the male, but also in a shorter form by the female. Here's the Ruby Crown song. And this song is very loud for such a small bird and can be heard over half a mile away in the woods. While it sings this song, it puts on a performance too and raises its crest feathers. So not too far off right now, there's a mixed flock of chickadees and I also heard some golden crowns. 
Uh, surprisingly, I haven't heard any nuthatches or woodpeckers, but we'll see. But they are just all hopping around the branches, having a good old time, seem nice and warm and fluffy. And I'm sitting here, it's 20 something degrees, there's two inches of snow on the ground, and I'm starting to get a little cold. So I'm wondering how these tiny little birds are able to be warm all winter and not just freeze like little bird popsicles, like those caterpillar popsicles. Basically, how they do this is a little bit of a mystery. The golden crown will sometimes survive nights as low as negative 40 degrees. Now, like I said, the ruby crown doesn't like nights that cold. It stays kind of more around negative 20, negative 30 at the coldest. So birds use a lot of different strategies to survive cold winter nights. The chickadees that are flying around right now, they do something where they enter a state of turpor during the night where they basically lower their body temperature. Um, it's thought that kinglets might do this, but it's never been proven. And these birds don't use fat stores to help them fend off the cold either. Studies have shown that kinglets have low levels of lipid, even in the wintertime. Now, golden crowns have been observed going into leafy squirrel nests on cold winter nights. Also, both ruby crowns and golden crowns seem to huddle close to the trunks of trees to try to stay sheltered and warm during the night. But these behaviors alone aren't enough to explain keeping their body temperatures at 110 degrees throughout these cold, cold winter nights. The best evidence for how these guys survive is from this account from a guy named Bern Heinrich out in western Maine during 2003. He camped out overnight and really, he must have been cold as fuck, but observed these birds and he saw them huddling together in a sheltered conifer branch um, in groups of about three to four. Their tails would be turned outward with their backs facing the cold and they kind of make a circle with their bodies all pressed together. It kind of reminds me of like what penguins do, you know, you've seen the males in the Arctic and they form this big circle. Um, that's kind of like what these guys do in these little groups of three to four. He observed that they were breathing rapidly, and birds wouldn't do that if they were in a state of turpor, basically hibernation, like they wouldn't be breathing rapidly. They weren't startled at all by his flashlight beams or his flash photography, so maybe they were in some kind of like mild hibernation state. He also noticed that they didn't return to the same site night after night. They would always like pick a new little sheltered area of fir branches or spruce branches. He noticed that they basically forage as much as they could during the day, and at the last second, when it was almost full, dark night, they would quickly go to a spot that was sheltered and then huddle together. So it's thought that this huddling behavior is vitally important for them to survive cold winter nights. The ruby crown doesn't do this. It'll just, like, huddle close to a tree trunk kind of by itself. That sounds very cold and terrible. And so that's why it's not able to survive as far north as the golden crown is. But even with these adaptations, winter is very tough on these birds, especially the golden crown. In the northernmost parts of its range, it's been known to dramatically decrease in numbers between January and March. This is especially true if there's a severe winter storm. Sometimes these storms can locally wipe out 100% of the golden crown kinglet population. This means that really old man winter is the main predator of these birds, and they may die off in really high numbers in the wintertime. Luckily, they reproduce quick enough to make up for their losses. 
Ruby crowns don't reproduce quite as quickly as the golden crown, which we'll talk about, but they seem to avoid the cold instead of toughing it out. Studies have shown in years where there's warmer winters, you see ruby crowns farther north, but in cold years they head south. Um, also, ruby crowns and golden crowns don't tend to live long um, compared to some other bird species. The oldest golden crown was six years old and the oldest known ruby crown was five years. So still a long time for like a little tiny bird, but compared to like some other songbirds, it's not that long. I mentioned old man winter as a predator, but also since these guys are small, pretty much everything can eat them. Sharp-shinned hawks and eastern screech owls have been observed feeding on them. Also, there was a report of an adult golden crown kinglet found in the stomach of a bobcat. Ruby crowns have been documented prey items for merlins and grackles. Squirrels, jays feed on the eggs of both these species. Cowbirds will occasionally be brood parasites of them. Ruby crowns also seem to collide a lot with antenna towers during their migration. In 1978, Tall Timbers Research Station in Tallahassee, Florida, uh, did a study where they collected birds that hit a TV antenna tower. And um, among those was 10 ruby crown kinglets collected in one fall season. So how do these mini royalty birds breed? Pair bond formation is likely formed in the early spring for these guys. Uh, with the ruby crowns, the male will get to the breeding ground first. Um, and then when the females show up, they begin to form their bond and start a family. They're monogamous during their mating season. The golden crown especially seems devoted to its mate. He'll follow her around during the nest building, the egg laying, the feeding. He's really kind of at the beck and call of the female, even in mating. Um, she will sing and call to the male and flutter her wings to kind of let him know that she's ready. Then she'll flatten herself against a branch um, or a partially built nest and allow the male to mount her. The copulation in these birds lasts up to seven seconds, which is actually a really long time in the bird world. The male will also feed the female while she's incubating. Ruby crown kinglet is really focused on the song. The male will sing, flare his crown, hop from branch to branch, and impress the female. And if she likes what she sees, she'll flutter her wings to let him know she likes it. The golden crown nest site seems to be selected by the female. Both ruby crown and golden crowns often nest in a spruce or a fir tree where there's dense needles to conceal and protect the nest. In the ruby crown, only the female builds the nest, but both the male and female build the nest for the golden crown. It takes about five days to build a nest. They're pretty good little nest engineers. In the golden crown kinglet, they'll form a square base structure with twigs, and then they make hammock-like strings with spiderweb and bark strips to connect all four corners. So it's almost like Lincoln logs with these guys and then tying it together. They further fill out their nest with grass, moss, and once it's nice and fluffy, the female will roll in it while kicking her feet, and she makes this nice cup shape. And sometimes these things are almost like a bowl, like a, with a very narrow opening, or sometimes they're just an open cup. The ruby crown builds a more pendulous nest. Um, often they are entirely covered in the opening except for a tiny little hole. And they use a wide variety of materials like feathers, cocoon silk, hair, plant down, and lots of other stuff to insulate their nest. For the golden crown, their territory is around four acres. The ruby crown, I saw that their territory can be as small as three acres or as large as 14. Um, really, it depends on if it's a mixed forest or a pure spruce tree stand. 
The colorful crest on these males is important for mating, and studies have shown that golden crown kinglets with more prominent orange and red pigments in their crest have larger pectoral muscles on average. Pecs in birds, they uh, power the wing muscles. And if there's anything I know about bird girls, they're all about the pecs. <laughs> um, these colors are also important in their territorial displays. Um, in golden crowns, males will aggressively defend their territory from rival males. If a rival gets too close, they will raise their crest and emit these CC noises at the intruder. The intruder might try to intimidate them back, but if none of them backs down, they'll hop back and forth on limb to limb and eventually lock bills and tumble to the ground to beat each other with their wings. And then the loser will fly off in shame. <laughs> They're also very aggressive to other birds like warblers, chickadees, and nuthatches if they perch on a tree where an active kinglet nest is. Ruby crowns also defend their territories, but they seem to rely on their song a lot more to ward off uh, rival males rather than fighting and wasting energy. If the song isn't enough though, they do have like a whole dance that goes along with it. Uh, the rival will get too close and a male ruby crown will lean towards it, splay its crown feathers out so far the crown becomes wider than its head, and then it'll swing its head back and forth. I saw quoted, as if drunkenly, um, and it'll try to intimidate the male bird off uh, while it's singing at the top of its lungs. Ruby crowns only raise one brood per season, um, but golden crowns actually raise two broods in a summer, and the first brood is laid in May. The female will generally lay eight to nine tiny breath mint sized eggs in a day or two. Ruby crown kinglets take a little bit more to lay their eggs, they usually lay like one per day until they have about eight or nine eggs. Both these females will incubate their eggs exclusively while the male will come and feed her. After about 15 days, little bumblebee-sized hatchlings will emerge. They're blind and naked. In golden crowns, they have these little feather tufts above their eyes and also little feather tufts on their crowns. But ruby crown hatchlings don't even have those, and they're just completely naked and blind and, and helpless. After their eggs hatch, the parents concentrate on feeding their hungry young and dealing with the aftermath. So, baby poop. After eggs hatch, parents will concentrate on feeding their hungry young. For the first few days, they'll regurgitate most of their food, but then they start feeding them live insects. And when you have food for babies, you have baby poop. And luckily, these nestlings will poop out something called fecal sacs. It's basically nature's version of a diaper. There's like a thin mucous membrane that surrounds the bird shit, and it makes it really easy for the parents to just pick it up and carry it away for the nest. That way, you don't have the nest getting gross. You don't have the babies pooping off the side and a predator potentially seeing the poop, looking up, seeing a nest, and seeing an easy meal. As the birds begin to develop their feathers, they look like messy versions of their parents, um, and they lack those nice, colorful crowns. By 16 and 19 days old, though, these baby birds can now fly and are ready to leave the nest. If you're a golden crown kinglet nesting, say bye to mom the moment you can fly because she's going to leave and start on that second nest in her second brood of babies, leaving dad behind to help feed the young fledglings as they learn to take care of themselves. For about the first 12 days out of their nest, they still lack tail feathers, and they're somewhat clumsy flyers, however they quickly learn how to gather food by themselves, relying on those strong little feet to hang upside down and glean stuff. By day 16 to 17 out of their nest, they're pretty much fully developed and on their own now. 
And these birds tend to be generally good breeders. It's estimated that nestling and fledging success is in like the 80% range. And that's pretty good. So that's like one pair of golden crown kinglets, if they have two broods, can produce about 10 to 14 new adult birds per year. Now I know you're all dying to know, how the hell do these cute, fiery feather balls evolve? So the genus Regulus, when people were first starting to characterize birds and figuring out how they evolved, who they're related to, they were thought to be closely related to tits, because tits are kind of small birds also. Um, or maybe the wood warblers of North America, because, you know, they also eat insects. Genetic analysis seems to pin them closer to wrens, though. And our wrens here in North America and our kinglets, they have a closer relationship to the old world wood warblers and the babblers than they do to the wood warblers we know in North America, like the Blackburnian warbler. Looking at one zoom tree of life, it has a branch splitting off about 45 million years ago that goes on to form the kinglets, wrens, thrushes, and wax wings. The kinglet genus looks like it began to form about 40 million years ago in Eurasia, and then later colonization events happened in North America that formed the golden crown and ruby crown we know today. And some closely related species to these birds are their European counterparts, the gold crest and the fire crest. Fossils of gold crests have emerged in Europe, dating from about 2.5 to 5 million years ago, and very recent and modern ones found from 12,000 years ago. There's also a fossil of a now extinct species of kinglet that was found in Bulgaria, dating from about 2 million years ago. There was also a fossil of an extinct species of kinglet that was found in Bulgaria and dated from about 2 million years ago. From looking at one zoom, it seems like the golden crown appears to be a pretty old species in the kinglet family and split off from the other ones as early as 30 million years ago. The ruby crown appears like it didn't differentiate until about 12 million years ago when it split off from the gold crest. However, this doesn't necessarily match up with some of the other genetic and anatomical research on these birds that I've read, and I'll catch you up on these, this now. So just looking at that, these birds seem separated by about 18 million years. Um, so they're actually pretty different, even though they're both found in pretty similar areas and look pretty similar, just different colored crowns, basically. And while superficially this is true, they're actually quite different in their behavior and their body structure. The ruby crown is more adapted to perching and hovering, while the golden crown is a very specialized in its feeding behavior. It really just gleans insects off of branches. And when you look at their European counterparts, the gold crest and the fire crest, they also display a similar difference in behavior. The gold crest is more anatomically and behaviorally similar to the golden crown, while the ruby crowned and the fire crest seem to share some similar traits like a more generalist feeding behavior and they both have these long ankle and wing bones. However, the ruby crown has some pretty distinct differences too from other members in its regulus genus and sometimes people have tried to put it in its own genus called Corthylio and this is ancient Greek for a small wren-like bird. The ruby crown distinctively doesn't have a nostril feather. So a lot of the birds in this genus, they have a single feather that covers their nostrils and, you know, kind of keeps stuff from getting in, um, while the ruby crown has bristle feathers that protect it instead. 
And also there's some differences in the way like the scales on the feet are too. I won't really go into that. Just know that we're still figuring out a lot about these birds. And based on how different the golden crowned and ruby crowned are, it's thought that they're the result of two different invasions to the New World. Uh, the golden crown came first and differentiated and kind of, you know, took over. And the ruby crown came over several million years after that. Now, even though the golden crowned and the gold crest seem to be really similar... Uh, the gold crest is actually a relatively new member of the kinglet family. So it's actually thought that the ancestor species to the golden crown was probably a early ancestor of the fire crest. And it was responsible for the North American kinglet invasion. And one ancestor of the fire crest came over and ended up forming the golden crown and later formed the fire crest over in Eurasia. But also one came several million years later and formed the ruby crown. So a little complicated. I hope <laughs> you guys followed that okay. There's not as much research and not as good of an evolutionary history on these birds, unfortunately. So almost every resource I read was like, more research needs to be done, more research needs to be done. So this is my amateur attempt to piece together a story on how these birds came to be. There are several subspecies of these birds. Anytime a bird is widespread, and especially being here for millions of years, it experienced a lot of glaciation events. And sometimes it got stuck in places that it just wanted to stay and, you know, hang out. The repeated glaciation cycles of the Pleistocene, these started about 2.5 million years ago, and they confined many North American species to only little areas in the glaciers where they could survive, or just far south where the climate was a little bit more agreeable. Golden crowned and ruby crowns thrived in some of these cold conifer areas in places like Southern California, which were then a lot colder. And actually, if you look in the La Brea tar pits, there's fossils of golden crowns and ruby crowns dated to about 15,000 years ago. In general, based on mitochondrial analysis, it seems like the golden crowns were separated into at least two areas of refugia, one on the east coast, one on the west coast, until the last glacial maximum ended about 25,000 years ago. And even still today, when you look at east coast, west coast golden crown species, while there's a lot of overlap in their range, they still hold on to some genetics. It's thought that only in the past 12,000 years has the golden crown spread to its current range. And that's part of the reason why it's rapidly able to exploit new ranges opening up in the Midwest of the U.S. And as these guys were kind of forced farther south, sometimes they ended up breeding in areas and then just staying there. Like there's one subspecies of the golden crown that just resides in central Mexico year-round, doesn't migrate or anything. It just likes it there. And this is kind of in some mountainous volcanic areas in Mexico. The golden crown will also vary in its crown hues um, in different areas. It's described to have a more rich orange in the eastern U.S. and a more cadmium orange in the northwest. In Arizona and Guatemala, it can even have scarlet colors in its crown. Across their range, there's also subtle differences in wing size and bill size in these species, but I won't bore you guys with those details. Unfortunately, a subspecies we will never see again, though, is the one I opened this with, the Guadalupe ruby crown kinglet, with that pink ruby crown. Like, I wish I could see that. That would be amazing. There is a little controversy with subspecies of these birds, too, and that comes from John James Audubon. John James Audubon once shot and 
drew a bird that he described as a new species of kinglet in North America and named it uh, the Cuvier's kinglet after French ornithologist and founder of paleontology, Jorge Cuvier. Um, hope I pronounced that right. Um, there's no evidence, though, that Cuvier's kinglet actually exists beyond Audubon's drawing, although you'll sometimes see it mentioned, especially in older birding books. There's been speculation that it's possibly a hybrid species between the golden crown and ruby crown, but this is unlikely. They're pretty far removed genetically, and there's been no examples otherwise of a hybrid. More likely, he saw a ruby crown kinglet that had xanthochromism. Um, this is an enzyme deficiency that causes it to occasionally have a yellow instead of a ruby crown. Uh, we talk about xanthochromism. Basically, they're missing the enzyme to convert yellow to red pigment, um, and this happens in cardinals sometimes, and they'll turn up yellow. In general, when Audubon talks about these birds, though, he seems to almost be pissed off because they're hard to shoot, they're so small, and then also they hide their nests so well he has a hard time finding them and collecting their eggs. And good on these birds, they're keeping hidden from him, they're staying away from his bullet shells. Um, he gets mad because even when uh, he does or his son shoots them, they will scurry away in the underbrush and be really hard to find. And when he draws them, he kind of draws them in a little bit of awkward positions too. He's trying to display the crown off, I understand, but they don't really look like the little balls of energy um, and acrobatic creatures that they are when you observe them in the wild. Audubon, it's a love-hate relationship with you, man. I'm sorry. Now, I don't have any myths and legends about these birds, unfortunately. I just really couldn't find anything, which is surprising. I mean, I'm sure indigenous peoples had some stories about the crowns on these guys. Um, however, I do have some weird facts about these birds. Um, they're so small that they appear that they can become impaled on thorns and burrs. There's a story where ornithologist Arthur Cleveland Bent reports in his book, Life History of North American Thrushes, Kinglets, and Their Allies, in 1949, that he came across a number of golden crown kinglets entangled in the hooks and ripening heads on several clumps of burdocks. On February 1974, at Delta, British Columbia, a golden crowned kinglet female was found dead caught on a burdock also. The ruby crowns aren't immune to this either. In November of 1997, at Lake Taoconi in Texas, a female ruby crowned kinglet was observed with her wing impaled on a greenbrier vine thorn. Luckily, though, as someone approached to help her free herself, she kind of panicked and was able to free herself and fly off, so that's good. But who knows, if it had been hooked a little worse and no one was there to help her, she might have died impaled on that thorn. So it's crazy to think, I mean, these are just like minor inconveniences for me walking through the woods. I might get cut up by some thorns. But these guys are so tiny that that thorn is like a giant spike that might impale them. So that's all I have on golden crown and ruby crown kinglets. This winter, please get out there, people, and look for these birds. I promise you it is an amazing experience to see them raise their crown for the first or the thousandth time. And you have to be a little bit patient with them, you know. They're a little bit shy. Uh, the golden crown is always a great spectacle to see. The ruby crown, you have to, you know, give it a little bit of time, wait for it to become agitated, and it'll show you that, uh, that crown. And I promise you it'll take your breath away. But... Enough on me talking about kinglets. My toes are frozen. My fingers are frozen. The birds are fine, I'm sure. 
But thanks for listening, you guys, and stay dirty, my birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with our rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, guys. I really appreciate it. Our intro music is by Ricky Pistone, a.k.a. Dick Piston. And our outro music is by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. And also, check out our theme song music video on YouTube. Our cover art is done by my beautiful fiancé, Lauren. Thanks for listening. Send any listener mail to dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Jungle, I might get into a 